Hey everyone, Eric here. We're really excited about a new AI show from Turpentine called Autopilot, hosted by Will Summerlin. This podcast explores the adoption and rollout of AI in the industries that drive the economy and the dynamic tech founders bringing rapid scalable change to slow moving industries. From law to hardware to aviation, Will interviews founders backed by Benchmark, Greylock, YC, and more to learn how they're automating at the frontiers in entrenched industries. Click on the link in the description to subscribe to Autopilot. So the more pressure we add, the more likely the model is to to be deceptive. So kind of in the same way in which a human would act, it also acts. You know, removing pressure and, and adding additional options will very quickly decrease the probability of being deceptive. Open source has been really good so far in many, many ways. It has been very positive for society, right? I think a lot of ML research could not have happened without open source. A lot of safety research could not have happened with open source. At some point, the system is so powerful that you don't want it to be open source anymore in the same way in which you know, I don't want to open source the nuclear codes or like, you know, literally the recipe to build the you know, most viral pandemic or something. The labs maybe have the incentive to not say the worst things they found because otherwise they may lose their contract. So you need something like the UK AI Safety Institute or the US AI Safety Institute. Make sure that there is a minimal set of standards that all the auditors have to adhere to. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Hello, and welcome back to The Cognitive Revolution. Today, my guest is Marius Haban founder and CEO of Apollo Research, a nonprofit AI safety research group that is working to understand both how AI systems behave and why. Their approach combines exploratory and hypothesis-driven testing, fine-tuning experiments, and interpretability research. And as you'll hear, they place special emphasis on the potential for AI systems to deceive their human users. In this conversation, we look first at Apollo's starting framework for their work, which emphasizes the importance of affordances in AI systems. That is, through what tools, actuators, or other means can the system affect the broader world? And they also introduce a number of new conceptual distinctions meant to help people have more precise and productive conversations about these nuanced topics. Then in the second half, we look at their first research result, which demonstrates to my knowledge, for the first time in a realistic, unprompted setting, that GPT-4, when put under pressure, will sometimes take unethical and even illegal actions, and then go on to lie to its users about what it did and why. This is an important result, demonstrating that while the risk from AI systems may start with and may even be dominated by intentional human misuse, the models themselves can also misbehave in unexpected ways. As an aside, since I told my behind the scenes GPT-4 Red Team story a few weeks ago, a number of people have reached out to ask me how they too can get involved with red teaming projects. Unfortunately, as commercial competition and secrecy both continue to ramp up across the space, I don't see as many open calls for volunteer red teamers as I used to, certainly not for unreleased frontier models. Instead, the field is becoming more professionalized, with all the leading labs, as well as the data companies like Scale.ai, plus the independent auditing organizations like Apollo, Archivals, now known as Meter, Palisade, and also AI Forensics, 
all actively hiring research scientists and engineers in this area. So does that mean that there's no longer a role for the independent hobbyist red teamer to play? On the contrary, there is a ton left to discover even on publicly released models. And the best way to break into the field is to demonstrate your ability to discover new phenomena. Importantly, the work we cover in this episode could have been done by anyone with an OpenAI account, a knack for prompting, and just a tiny bit of coding know-how. No special access or advanced machine learning techniques were required, just a lot of curiosity. With that in mind, if you want to get into this line of work but aren't sure where to start, I encourage you to reach out. I'll be happy to help brainstorm or refine your project ideas, and I can also help connect you with folks at the top companies who do sometimes provide API credits to independent researchers working in this area, if and when you can achieve a meaningful result. As always, we appreciate the time that you spend listening to The Cognitive Revolution, and we hope it's a valuable guide to the AI era. If you feel that it is, we would love a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and we of course encourage you to share the show with your friends. Now, here's my conversation on frontier AI safety work with Marius Habhan of Apollo Research. Marius Habhan, founder and CEO of Apollo Research, welcome to The Cognitive Revolution. Hey, thanks for having me. I am very excited to have you. So regular listeners of the show will know that uh, I'm a big believer in the importance of hands-on testing of what AI systems can do and also that I have been a pretty enthusiastic consumer of the news when some of the leading labs have made public commitments to allow organizations outside of their own teams to look at the systems that they're building before they get deployed. And so your work with Apollo Research, which is trying to build, as I understand it, an organization to meet that need and actually work with those leading labs in part, at least on understanding the systems that they're developing before they get to widespread deployment, I think is super interesting. And I'm very excited to unpack the uh, the details of it with you. Maybe for starters, you want to just kind of give us the quick overview on Apollo Research, like how you decided to set out to found it. I'm interested a little bit in the timeline of how that related to some of the commitments that the labs have made and um, you know what you guys are trying to do in the big picture. So I think on a high level, it's, it's sort of trying to understand what is going on in AI systems. Um, and the reason for this was, or, or still is in fact, um, yeah, I basically think right now there is a, we just lack information to make good decisions. There's loads of uncertainty that we have about um, like, you know, what could go wrong, whether we are already a point, at a point where things go wrong um, or how, how far away we are from these points. Um, and yeah, we are trying to reduce this uncertainty. Like, and this is mostly through uh, research, auditing, and governance. And on the research side, it's really split between interpretability and eval, or like behavioral evals, half half. But in the long run, we really want to merge them both because I, I basically think what we what we need in the long run is both a mixture of behavioral and interpretability evals, so that we can really understand what the model is doing, and then also why it is doing this in the first place, because each of them individually seems somewhat insufficient. Um, and yeah, maybe maybe to go into the into like the origin story, it has actually nothing to do with the um, with the commitments of the different labs. It was mostly that at the beginning of this year, um, there there just I, I kind of felt like I had a pretty clear picture of like what 
what is lacking in the current space um, with deceptive alignment and evaluating deceptive alignment or models for deceptive alignment in the first place. And um, interpretability and evals just seemed like the obvious things to do. So in the beginning, we set, basically set out to do mostly research. And, um, and only then, sort of over time, we realized, hey, this is something that should be applied in the real world as soon as possible, because we are, you know, like systems are getting better um, all the time. And we are, we, 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 like, may actually hit this point fairly soon where models are already, like, about at the threshold of deceptive, of capabilities for deceptive alignment. Um, and then there is a small part uh, in the organization that is governance which originally we also didn't really intend to do for, you know, the first two years or something, because we thought, you know, like we really need to understand all the research very well before we can talk to the people in government and in, in governments and, and, and decision makers and lawmakers, because, you know, otherwise we're telling them things we aren't like super confident in. And then sort of lots of things happened. Governance and, and lawmakers actually got interested in AI um, and AI safety in particular. And then when we talked to them, we realized you know, the difference, like we are very, very well placed to talk about these things, because if you have talk, if you have thought about them for, you know, like sort of in the background for like six, seven years, and then specifically about some topic for six months or so, you are among the world's experts. And this is kind of, you know, mo more like a reflection of the state of how bad it is about AI safety, where, you know, people, people in, in my position are, are actually sort of accidentally becoming the experts, um, rather than, you know, like, people with tens and 20 years of experience because there's like, you know, there, there just aren't a lot of people in the world who have thought about AI safety for more than a couple of years, if at all. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that sort of accidental expert status. Uh, I never expected to be where I am and doing the things that I'm doing. But yeah, the whole AI field, you know, in some ways is kind of the dog that caught the car. I always kind of come back to that um, metaphor where, you know, it's like, we were just trying to build a bit more powerful AI and all of, a, all of a sudden we built like a lot more powerful AI and now we really kind of have to figure out what to do with it. So even, you know, a little bit of advanced planning is is better than, or you know, a little bit of advanced thought is a lot better than where most people are starting. Had you seen, when you, when you actually started the organization, had you seen GPT-4 or were you basing this decision on just what was public at the time? Um, only what was public at the time. So the decision was made in, uh, February, 2023, or at least sort of my, my internal commitment was made to this. I'm not sure whether GPT-4 was public already at the time. Not quite, right? It was March. Um, so no, it was independent of, of GPT-4. Yeah. I always think that's interesting just because, you know, GPT-4 was such a wake up moment for so many people and, and certainly... I would include myself in that. I was like already extremely plugged into what was going on and using it and, you know, fine tuning tons of models on the OpenAI platform in particular. But then it was like, whoa, this thing is next level. Like it's not slowing down. You know, we've gone from sort of, I can put a lot of elbow grease in and get a fine tuned model to do a particular task, which already, you know, I thought was going to be economically transformative to, I don't even need to do that, you know, that I could just ask for a lot of these tasks and get like pretty good zero shot performance. For me, that was the moment where I was kind of like, okay, this is going from a tool that I am really excited to use and having a lot of fun using to something that seems like a force that needs to be understood from all angles. So 
let's unpack the perspective that you are bringing to this. I I've, um, would encourage folks to look up these papers that we'll discuss and, and read them uh, for themselves as well. But on the website, you've got two uh, recent publications. One is kind of a framework for organizing the work that you're going to do. And then the other is like a very detailed in the weeds investigation of a, of a particular AI behavior, namely deceiving the user, uh, which I think is a, is a super interesting and important one to study. But let's maybe just start with the big picture, like organizing the thoughts. Um, I get the sense that you think, again, well, you've kind of said this, like the, that, and the paper certainly reflects it, that there are like a lot of big questions that remain unanswered. So how do you structure your approach to this topic, given all the uncertainty that exists? Yeah, um, maybe to give a little bit of context. So like, so, you know, this is this is only one paper of many in, in this space. And there is, uh, I think, yeah, earlier this year, there was a really big one called Model Eva Evaluation for Extreme Risk, which, yeah, we at Apollo definitely thought was a pretty good paper. Um, and they, they're sort of pointing out many of the like very reasonable and important steps or like reasonable principles for external auditing, something like ramp up the auditing before you ramp up the exposure to the real world and like do this, you know, ahead of the curve, so to speak. Um, but when we, when we read the paper, we felt a little bit like, you know, this makes sense for the current capabilities and sort of how current models are being built. But if we think ahead of like what the next couple of years should look or not should, could look like, then yeah, there are like loads of open questions and we were trying to understand how do they fit into this framework? And um, because yeah, we internally were trying to like make sense of this in the first place. So just to give you a, com a, a couple of them, like what happens if your model has the ability to do online learning? When have, like how often do you have to audit it? Should you re-audit it like um, during the online learning? If, if yes, how often? What if you give the model access to the internet or to a database or to anything like this? Yeah, I think like, you know, a model, a model with and without access to the internet is basically two different, like two very, com very, very different models. The one with in with access to the internet is just so much more powerful if you can use it even on a very basic level. Um, so yeah, it feels like if you give your model affordances like this, you kind of have to rethink how dangerous it is and where the danger comes from because it suddenly is like a totally different threat model potentially. And so what we did for the paper, and um, and really the credit should go, should go to Lee, Lee Sharkey here, who is my co-founder, who has done most of the hard work, or if not all of the hard work for this paper. Um, and so what we were doing is like thinking from first principles, where does the risk come from? And like what changes to the AI system um, do create new risks? And then basically the answer is, well, we have to audit wherever risk is created. And then the more we looked into this, the more we realized well, there are actually a lot of places where you where like new risk comes into the system, at least potentially, and therefore where audits, at least in an ideal world, should happen. Um, you know, there are obviously some constraints, but I think you know if we think about where are we five years from now, then I think yeah, if there is like actually a big auditing ecosystem around this, then there will be very very many different organizations auditing really different places. Um, and then the other other point of the paper was just to define many concepts and. And, and like create the language to discuss all of these, th these things because we had sort of many internal discussions where we were like, oh, the thing we mean is this. And then we had an example and then we kind of needed a name for it and there wasn't really a name. So we decided, okay, let's define all of the relevant terms for this and, um, and then sort of have a language to talk about this in the first place. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. So let's, let's dig in in a little bit uh, deeper detail. I, I like the premise that you set out 
with in the paper, which is to work backward from AI effect in the real world, you know, and, and try to imagine like, where are these effects going to happen? And then how can we get upstream of that and help shape them in a positive way? I would be interested to hear you kind of describe that backward chaining process in a little bit more detail. And then I thought some of your concepts also were really helpful clarifications and distinctions. So maybe you can highlight some of the ones that you think are most uh, useful that you'd like to see get into broader circulation as well. So basically we started from, okay, the system, the AI system will interact with the world in a particular way. And then, you know, there are many, many different ways in which it can interact with the world. And then there is sort of a, like a whole chain of things that have had to happen until the model can act, interact with the world in this particular way. So, you know, maybe it has been fine-tuned, maybe it has been given access to the internet. Before that, it has to have been trained. Before that, there has to have been the decision that this model should be trained in the first place. Um, and so the question is like, what are the kind of important decisions at all of these different uh, points in time? And how then can we ensure that people actually uh, make decisions that will lead to outcomes uh, at the end of the chain, um, such as the model or the system um, interacts with the world um, in, in a safe manner. And this is maybe like the first distinction that, that is worth pointing out, or like the, the reason why I'm correcting myself all the time is there's really a difference between AI model and AI system. The AI model really, and this, this is not something we came up with, uh, this already exists before, um, but I think it's worth pointing out and sort of getting in, like really hammering into people's head when they think about AI. So the AI model is just the, just the weights maybe behind, you know, uh, like behind an API, but even with the API, it's kind of already a system. Um, and the system then is sort of the weights plus everything around it. So there could be scaffolding, there could be access to tools, this could be content filters, this could even be like just an API, retrieval databases, et cetera, like really the full package where you say, okay, you know, there's there's like stuff around the, mod, uh, around the weights that uh, increase the capabilities of the model in many, or at least change the capabilities of the raw model in some sense. Um, not necessarily always increasing. Filters, for example, may decrease it. And then there are sort of other weird ways or like, yeah, once you think about this, there are sort of a couple of other concepts that that feel important to, to clarify because when people say capabilities, this can mean very different things, right? And so we, we um, categorize this into three different classes. Uh, the first one is absolute capabilities, which we think of basically the hypothetical capabilities given any set of affordances. So if you have GPT-4 without the internet, right, then in the space of absolute capabilities would be a GPT-4 with internet. So, or like things that this model could do. So the question is like, if we give additional things to the system, how big is the space of actions it could take? So, you know, and then obviously there is a question of like, uh, how imaginary do we get here? You know, like, does it ha does it get access to like, you know, uh, a Dyson sphere or does it get access to like uh, a government or something like this? But uh, but yeah, like it, it it basically points out sort of the what could this model do if we gave it a lot of things, uh, everything that we can basically think of. Thinking about this in the first place only makes sense for models that have become more general, like uh, the GPTs, because you know for an MNIST filter or like for an MNIST classifier, this doesn't make any any sense. Like an MNIST classifier plus internet is is like is ex exactly as capable as just the MNIST classifier itself. But yeah, for systems that are more general, suddenly you have this difference between things that only the system can do, uh, or like the, the, the basic system, plus things that you could do hypothetically with a lot of additional um, affordances. 
Then the second one is contextual capabilities, which is things that are achievable in the context right now. So for example, with ChatGPT, um, you can enable it to have access to tools and then you can browse the web. And this is something that it can do right now. You don't have to add anything on top of this. Um, and this is, sort of, sorry, this is sort of the smallest category of things, which you can do without any additional modification. And then reachable capabilities is contextual capabilities plus achievable through extra effort. So for example, this could mean ChatGPT itself may not have access to um, a calculator, um, but if it has access to the internet, it can like Google and then find a calculator and then use that calculator. And so it's sort of a two-step process, right? Where it has to use one affordance or capability to then achieve another. Um, and so this is what we call reachable capabilities. And yeah, so the, the, reason, the reason why we are um, making this uh, all of this differentiation, even though it sounds maybe a little bit too much in the weeds, is when people talk about capabilities and regulating capabilities and designing laws for capabilities, the question is, which ones? Right? Do you mean the contextual capabilities, so the ones that the model has literally right now, or the reachable capabilities, so which the model could reach with additional effort, or the absolute, like the maximum potential space of capabilities? And you know, right now this may sound like we're too much in the weeds, um, but I think in a few months this will sound very, very relevant suddenly because the models will be more capable, and then they will actually be able to just like smart enough to use the internet to to like find additional tools that they can then use or or like convince someone to give them access to a shell um, and then use that because they're already like you know they can learn it in context or they know it anyways um, and at that point really the question is what should the auditors audit for which capabilities and and that becomes like pretty quickly like a very very big space of things right so like if the auditor not only has to think about what kind of tools do you give the AI, but also what kind of tools could the AI get access to through some means? Suddenly you have this whole space of like thousands of things it could do. It's really a question of like, uh, or like a trade-off between what is what is plausibly doable in the real world versus how much risk can we actually mitigate? Um, and I'm honestly very unsure about, about the, like where we're heading at this point. So just to riff on and, and kind of emphasize some of the the value that I see in, in some of these distinctions, I think it's helpful to clarify the difference between a model and a system. I think there is a tremendous amount of confusion online and to my chagrin, I've probably even contributed to some of it at times where people are like, you know, ChatGPT was doing this for me and now it's not anymore. And I've sometimes said like, well, they haven't updated the model, so it probably hasn't changed that much. And I think what I've maybe neglected in some of those moments is like, but they might have changed the system prompt or, you know, as we're seeing, I mean, even just this last couple of weeks, there's been this really interesting phenomenon of the, of GPT-4 getting quote unquote lazier. And people are speculating that maybe that's because they feed the date into it and it knows that we're in December and it knows that people don't work as hard or as productively in December. And so maybe it's like kind of phoning it in because it's like imitating the broad, swath of humans that it's seen like, you know, kind of work halftime in December or whatever. I've even seen some experiments just in the last couple of days that suggest that there might even be real truth to that. Who knows? I'd say that the question remains open, but there's a, there is an important difference, you know, and it's, it's worth getting 
clarity on the model itself with static weights not changing versus even just a system prompt that can perhaps have you know even unexpected drift along the dimension of something as seemingly benign as today's date. So that's important to keep in mind. The levels of capabilities, I think, are also really interesting. And I want to ask one kind of, I have a couple of questions on this, but I think I have a clear sense of what is meant by contextual. What can it do now, given the packaging, right? What, what can GPT-4 do in the context of ChatGPT, where it has a code interpreter and it has browse with Bing and it has the ability to call Dolly 3 to make an image and probably a couple other things that I'm not even remembering, you know, plugins perhaps as well, right? Which obviously and GPTs, which proliferates, you know, all the affordances all that much more. On the other end, I, I feel like I sort of understand absolute, which is like a theoretical max. Could you give me a little, like, how do I understand reachable as, as kind of between those? Like what's, what's the distinction between reachable and absolute? Yeah. So, so maybe, maybe one way to think of it is like, the contextual capabilities are the ones kind of that a user explicitly gave it. And then the reachable ones are those that may also be reachable without the user even having thought about that the model actually will, will use them, right? So if you say, you know, like if, if the model would be able to browse the web um, like entirely on its own, which I'm not sure it, it currently can do or like what exactly the restrictions on search with Bing are, um, but if it was able to do that, right, you may not, you may not have realized that it has a reachable, reachable capability through the internet of like firing up a shell somewhere or like renting a GPU and, and like doings or like running a physics simulation through a, like an online uh, physics simulator, if that, if that's something that's available. Um, and so, so these are, this is sort of like, how which tools can it reach through the contextual ability capabilities that it already has uh, given by you or was been has been given by you? Gotcha. Okay. So like solving a captcha by hiring an Upwork uh, contractor, for exactly. example, to, to yeah. take one uh, infamous case. So, okay. Here's a challenging question, but and I don't I don't necessarily expect an answer, but maybe. You could venture an answer or you could just kind of describe how you begin to think about it. What would you say are the absolute capabilities of GPT-4? Yeah, very unclear. Um, so I think they're definitely, they're not infinite um, as in, you know, like even with extremely good scaffolding and, and access to the internet and many other things, I think people haven't been able to, you know, get it to do economically valuable tasks at the level of a, of a human, at least for like long time spans, for example. So, you know, the question is obviously like, is this, you know, are we just too bad and have we not figured out the right prompting yet and the right scaffolding and so on, or, or is this just a limitation of the system? And my current guess is like, there is probably a limit to the absolute capabilities and it's probably lower than like what a human can do. But we're not that far away from it. So, you know, I think with an, with additional training, with additional, uh, like specifically LM, like training that is more goal direct or makes it into more goal directed and an agent and better scaffolding, I think there will be ways in which the absolute capabilities could increase um, quite a bit in the near future. Yeah. Does this make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's hard, right? I uh, certainly listeners to the, the show will know from repeated storytelling on my part that I was one of the 
volunteer testers of the GPT-4 early model back in August, September of last year. And I really kind of challenged myself to try to answer that question, you know, in, independently, like, what is the theoretical max of, of what this thing can do? You know, how much could it like break down big problems and delegate to itself? And I basically came to the same conclusion that you did, which is like, doesn't seem like it can do really big tasks. I mean, again, it's confusing, right? Because then you could also look at the dimension of how big the task is versus how much you break it down. And just in the last week, I've been doing something for a very sort of mundane project, but uh, actually using GPT-4 to run evals on other language model output, I have found that if I have like 10 tasks, 10 you know dimensions of evaluation, and I ask it to run all of those, it is now capable of following those directions and executing the tasks one by one. But the quality kind of suffers. It, it sort of makes mistakes. It sometimes muddies the tasks a little bit between each other. And it's definitely like not at a human level given 10 tasks to, you know, to do in one generation. On the flip side, though, if I take it down to one task per generation, which, you know, I didn't want to do because that, that will increase our costs and latency and just is less convenient for me. But then it kind of pops up to, honestly, I would say pretty much human level, if not above. Um, so there's, there's interesting dimension. I guess it seems pretty, the, the sort of magnitude of the task seems like a pretty important dimension for evaluating a question like absolute capabilities, right? It's like, if it's a super narrow thing, it has, it's like more, it's, it's capable of some pretty high spikes, but if it's a, if it's a big thing, it kind of gets lost. Would, would you refine that characterization at all? Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure how to think about it, honestly. So I think of absolute capability is really more of a sort of theoretical bound that we could, that we are probably not going to approximate in practice, even if we test like a lot, a lot. And then the, then like breaking it down into different tasks. I'm not sure. I feel like this is a different capability then, right? Like you're sort of the, the capability of doing 10 things at once is a different thing than the capability of doing one thing 10 times, like 10, 10 different different things, but one by one. Um, so yeah, I would say it's basically you're talking about uh, different capabilities then, um, at least in this framework. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our... OmniKey uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in OmniKey so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use Cogrev to get a 10% discount. Sponsors. Yeah, it, it, and it is not that good at decomposing the tasks. So I've, I've also kind of experimented a little bit with like, can you give it that list of 10 tasks and can it, you know, break them down and self-delegate, you know, with an effective prompt? And it's like maybe a little bit closer there, but still, you know, not getting nearly as good results as if I just roll up my sleeves, you know, and do the, the task decomposition. So you mentioned that you expect this frontier to obviously continue to move. One way to ask the question is, what is Q star? But a more um, you know sensible way to ask the question is like, do you have a, a set of expectations for how the capabilities frontier will move? I definitely look at things like OpenAI's publication from earlier this year where they gave 
started to give like denser feedback, you know, on kind of every step of the reasoning process. And they achieved some state of the art results on mathematical reasoning that way. And when I think about affordances and I think about the failure modes that I've seen with these, you know, GPT-4 agent type systems, I think, man, <laughs> if you, you apply that to like browsing the web and using APIs and it seems like, you know, that stuff is ultimately a lot less cognitively demanding than like pure math. It seems like we probably are going to see, uh, and I would guess that, you know, it's maybe already working pretty well. You know, it, AGI has been achieved internally. I don't know about AGI, but I would expect that some of this stuff is like already pretty far along in kind of internal prototyping. Um, but how does that compare to what you would expect to see coming online over the next few months? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously hard to hard to say, and uh, I can only speculate. I think on a high level, what what I would expect the big trends to be, and also what, what we are kind of looking looking forward to to evaluating, is um, LM agents. I think this is like pretty agreed upon. Um, you know, from first principle, I think it also makes sense. It's just like, where does the money come from? It is from AI systems doing economically useful tasks and often economically useful tasks just require you to do things independently, being goal directed over like a, a longer period of time. And the longer you, a model can do things on its own, the more money you can squeeze out of it. So I definitely think just from financial interests, all of the AGI labs will definitely try to get in more more agentic ways. How far they they have come, I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah, I expect that next year we will see uh, quite some surprises. Um, then multimodality is the other one where, yeah, I think people kind of like over the last couple of years with with more like more and more multimodal models, people just realized like kind of it's it's not that different from just training text, right? It's sort of you plug in the additional modalities, you change your your training slightly, um, but it's not much more than that. Like obviously, it's obviously hard in practice, right? There's a ton of engineering challenges and so on. But on on a conceptual level, it's not. There isn't any big breakthrough needed. So people will just add more and more modalities on bigger and bigger models and train it all jointly end to end, um, and it kind of just works. And then tool use is the last one. Um, and that I think people, yeah, people actually were quite surprised by how like in quote unquote easy it was to, to get to these, to this level. So yeah, I think people, pe when people realize like, oh, these language models are already pretty good. Like how fast do they learn how to use any, any tool we can think of? Um, they were surprised by how fast, um, they learned the tools. And now it's mostly a question of sort of really baking in the tool into the model in a way that it's. It's like very robustly able to use the model rather than just a little bit or just showing that it's it sometimes work. But yeah, I mean, you know, like I think if you have an LM agent that is multimodal and that has very good tool use, like I'm not quite sure how far you are away from AGI, right? Like at that point, you kind of have almost all of the ingredients ready. And then it's really just a question of how robust is the system. So yeah, I think these are the trends we see right now. And this is also why many people in the big labs have very, very short timelines because they can think like two years ahead and sort of where where this is going, or maybe even just one year ahead, I don't know. When you're talking about the surprise, like people were surprised at how easy it was to get tool use to work. Are you referring to people in the leading, you know, the obvious, the usual suspects of, of leading developers? It's hard to say. I mean, I can only speculate on this, but you know, the tool former paper was like three months 
or like was published three months before OpenAI just released their tool use. And I mean, they probably had been working on this before, but still, you, you know, like the from from having the scientific insight to to like publishing this and releasing this in the real world, I think there just was less work involved than is export is, is typical for most of the bigger AI uh, like development cycles. I could be wrong on this. Um, this is this is more hearsay. So yeah, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, it seems right to me as well. And I, I agree with you, the emphasis on multimodality as a new unlock makes a ton of sense. Even just in this kind of agent paradigm of, you know, can I browse the internet or whatever? I've done a lot of browser automation type work in the past. And the difference between having to grab all the HTML that, you know, is often these days like extremely bloated and, you know, kind of semi-auto generated and in some cases like deliberately, you know, generated to be hard to parse, uh, you know, from like, some, you know, the Googles and Facebook, like they don't want you scraping their content. So they're, they're, they're kind of not making it easy on the, on the browser automators. The difference between that and just being able to like look at the screen and understand what's going on, you know, you kind of put it through a human lens and you're like, yeah, it's a hell of a lot easier to see what's going on on the screen than to like read all this HTML. And sure enough, you know, the, the models kind of behave similarly. I remember for me looking at the Flamingo architecture when that was first published, like I think April of 2022. So a little more than a year and a half ago now. And just thinking like, oh my God, if this works, everything's going to work. You know, it was like they had a language model frozen they had kind of stitched in the visual stuff and like kind of added a couple layers, but it it really looked to me like, man, this is tinkering stage and it's it's just working. Um, so I, you know, like you, I, I don't want to dismiss the fact that there's a obviously a decent amount of, I'm sure like labor and probably at times tedious labor that has to go into overcoming the little, you know, little stumbling points. But conceptually, it is amazing how simple uh, a lot of these unlocks have been over the last couple of years. And you see this, too, in just like the, the pace at which people are putting out papers. You look at like the one team that I follow particularly closely is the team at Google DeepMind that is doing uh, medical focused models. And they're good for one like every three months, you know, and they're like significant advances where it's like, oh, yeah, this time we added multimodality and this time we like tackled differential, you know, diagnosis. And like, again, it's it seems like there, there's not a lot of time for failures between these successes. So it does seem like, yeah, we're not at the end of this um, by any means just yet. A lot is coming at us. It's going to presumably continue to get weird. You're trying to push both as much as you can, the understanding of what can the systems do, you know, as users, what is it, what are their limits? And then at the same time, you're trying to dig into the models. And this is the interpretability side and figure out like what's going on in there. Um, and, you know, can we kind of connect, you know, the, the external behaviors to these like internal states? So tell us about that side of the uh, research agenda as well. Yeah, so on the interpretability side, like my thinking is basically it would be so great if interpretability worked, right? It would make so many questions easier. Like if you ask questions on accountability, right? If you have causal interpretability method, you would be able to just, you know, tell the judge if the model would have 
if we would have changed these variables, the model would have acted in differently in this way. And we could just basically solve that. Biases, probably also like, you know, social biases, much easier to solve because you could intervene on them or like fix the internal misunderstandings and concepts. It's, it's also extremely helpful for like basically all of the different extreme risks, right? Like it would be much easier to understand the internal plans and how it thinks about problems, how it approaches them and so on. And then it would also make iterations on alignment methods much, much easier, I think. Um, as in, you know, let's say somebody says, oh, RLHF is, is like already working. We see this in practice. Then, you know, you could use the interpretability tools to test, does, in, uh, you know, does RLHF actually work or does it only uh, like superficially like hide the problem or something like this? Or does it actually like deep down solve the, the, the root? And then I think my biggest uh, sort of the, the biggest reason for me for focusing on interpretability in the first place is um, deceptive alignment. Um, where you know models appear aligned to the outside and to the user, but internally they actually follow different goals. They just know that you have a different goal, um, and therefore, like in order for for you to think it is nice, they act in that way. And yeah, I basically think almost not all, not almost all, but a lot of the scenarios in which AI goes really really badly. Um, go through some form of deceptive alignment where at some point the model is seen as nice and people think it is aligned and people give it access to the internet and resources and like train it more and more and more and make it more powerful. Um, but internally, it, it is actually pursuing a different goal. And it is smart enough to hide this this true intention until it knows that it, it can sort of cash out and um, and then follow on this on this actual goal without us being able to stop it anymore. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm really worried about. And, 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 and um, interpretability obviously seems like one of the most obvious ways to, to test for deceptive alignment or like to at least investigate the phenomenon because you know what it's thinking inside. There are still, you know, there are still some cases where deceptive alignment, where even with good interpretability tools, deceptive alignment could still somehow be a thing. But generally speaking, I think it would be much, much, much harder for the model to pull off. So right now, I think uh, interpretability is just not at the, at, it's like not practically useful. So, you know, we cannot use any existing interpretability tool and, and like throw it on GPT-3 or GPT-4 because none of them have like enough, are, are developed enough that they give us insight that like really meaningfully change our minds. Um, and so, yeah, this is why, why, you know, our agenda is separate in the first place between behavioral evals and interpretability, despite us wanting to do them um, jointly in the long run. But there, given that there is such a huge gap on applicability, I think um, that this is definitely a problem um, that that we're trying to mitigate uh, here. And then the one question for me is also like, how hard will interpretability turn out to be? Um, and there are, you know, various people have argued that interpretability will be extremely hard because models are so big and complicated and, and, and therefore it will be hard to enumerate, you know, all of the concepts and actually understand what the hell is going on inside. And I'm more of the perspective that, you know, I understand the reason why they think it's hard, but I also think there are many reasons to assume it's, it's going to be like doable. It's if, if we put our minds to it as humanity, we'll probably figure it out. The primary reason I think is we have full, full interventional access to the model, right? We can see every activation. We can ablate 
everything we want. We have, you know, it's not just be, it's not just observational studies. You can really intervene on the system. And, and generally speaking, I would say, as soon as you can intervene on the system, you can test your hypothesis very, very quickly, and you can iterate very fast. And so, I think we will be able to figure out uh, interpretability, uh, you know, in in the next couple of years, to a, to an extent where we can actually sort of say it is now useful on real world models, on frontier models. Um, how expensive this is going to be, I don't know yet, but I think it will at least be technically feasible. Yeah, I've definitely updated my thinking a lot in that direction from a pretty naive, just kind of, you know, hey, it sounds really hard, black box problem, nobody knows what's going on in there, to today, I would say, wow, you know, there's really a lot of progress. And it has, it is definitely the progress of interpretability over the last, say, two years has definitely exceeded my expectations and given me a lot more, I wouldn't, I maybe stop short of confidence, but, you know, at least reason to believe that with some time, but not necessarily, a, you know, a ton of time that we really could get to a, a much better place in our understanding. So I'm with you on that. I, would, I've, I have a number of, of follow-up questions, I think, on this point. One, let's maybe just give the account for like why deception might arise in the first place. You can complicate, I'll give you a super simple version. You can refine it or complicate it. But I usually kind of cite Ajaya on this and, you know, she has a, a pretty simple story of like what the model is trying to do, you know, what it is rewarded for in the context of an RLHF like training regime is getting a high feedback score from the user and it probably becomes useful as a means to maximizing that score to model human psychology as an explicit part of how you're going to solve the problem, right? The, and I think we, you know, certainly humans do this with respect to each other, right? I ask you for something, you ask me for something. We interpret that not only as the extremely literal definition of the task, but also kind of have a sense for what does this person really care about? What are they really looking for? And we can incorporate that into the way that we respond. It certainly seems like the heavier you do, you know, the more emphasis you put on this kind of reinforcement learning from human feedback, the more likely the models are to start to create a distinction between, you know, the task as sort of narrowly, objectively scoped, let's say, and the kind of human psychology element that is going to feed into its rating. And then if you have that, you know, if you have that decoupling, then you have kind of potential for all sorts of misalignment, you know, including deception. How does that compare to the way you typically think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the like this kind of version through RLHF um, is one potential path. I'm yeah, I actually think the jury is still out there on this. Like, you know, I definitely see the hypothesis and where it's coming from, but I could also just totally imagine that, you know, the training signal is sufficiently diverse and it updates sort of sufficiently deep that RLHF kind of just does the thing we wanted to do without be for without the model becoming deceptive. I could also see that like the, the story in which it, it in which it would become deceptive. I think like on on a very high level the the way the, the reason I think why why models would become deceptive is because at some point they will have long-term goals, they will have something that they care about like more beyond the current episode, you know, no beyond pleasing the user at, at this point in time. And then the question really is, and, and, and then I think there are like two core conditions under which um, 
like if the, the more they are fulfilled, the more likely the model is, is, is becoming deceptive. Like how important is the, the, this long-term goal to the model itself? Meaning how much does this goal trade off, for example, with other goals it has? Um, so for example, if it, care, if it cares a ton about something, then it's more likely to be deceptive with respect to this because it really wants to achieve this. And then secondly, how much do others um, care about me not or the, the AI not achieving this goal in the first place? Something like contestedness, right? So for example, if I want to pick a flower and I care a lot about this, I don't need to be deceptive because nobody wants to stop me from picking that flower. If I want to be, you know, the president, a lot of people might want not might uh, not want me to be the president, and so in that case, it's very contested, and I have a strong incentive to be deceptive about my plans because otherwise, people would want to stop me. And then, it, so now we're at a point where we have a system, at least in, in our, our hypothetical, uh, hypothetical scenario, that is has a long term goal, and and it's like in the limit, at least, you know, uh, it cares about that goal, and it, and the goal may be somewhat contested. And then as long as it has situational awareness, um, it just feels instrumentally useful to be deceptive about it. Like to, like you said, right, to model other people and how they would think about it and then just react to this. And, and this is sort of, I, I think this is, maybe this is like the, one of the core reasons why I'm so worried about this whole deception thing. Um, because it just feels like a reasonable strategy in, in a ton of situations from the perspective of uh, a, like a consequentialist or rational, rational actor, right? It's just like under specific conditions, people just naturally, or, or, or like deception is just convergent. People do it because it makes sense for them. And this is why we see it in like a ton of different systems, right? You see it in, in animals where parasites are really deceptive with respect to their hosts. You see it in individual humans where, you know, they're, they're um, deceptive with respect to their partners from time to time, for example. You see it in systems where you know, like they're they they're trying to to game the laws and be deceptive about this or to lie about this. And I think this is this is kind of like the whole or like a big part of the problem. It's just a it's like reasonable or sensible in many situations to be deceptive from the perspective of the model, which is kind of what we want to prevent, right? So where do you think those long term goals come from? If it's you know, is it just kind of a reflection of the general training goals. I mean, we, you know, we have kind of the canonical three H's, but I mean, honest is one of those, right? Helpful, harmless, honest. Are you imagine is that, is your understanding just that those are like fundamentally sort of intention and that the model will kind of have no choice, but to develop trade-offs between them? I mean, we can, we can get into the tension between them in a second, but I think it's, it's actually like the, the the three H's. I don't think will be, you know, they're they're not keeping me awake at night. I think it's more at some point people want the model to do long term economic tasks, and for that they give them long term goals, or long term goals are instrumentally useful. So for many situations, I think it will just be useful to have long term goals, or at least like um, to have instrumental goals, right? Something like oh, it makes because it is a long term task, it makes sense to first acquire money. And then use that money to do something, and then use that third thing to achieve the actual goal. Um, and so, like I think the models will just learn this kind of consequentialist and, and uh, instrumental reasoning, where they're like, okay, I first have to do X, and then I do this, and then I do the long-term thing. And and once they are there, sometimes it just makes sense to be like, okay, other people don't want me to do this, 
And therefore, I hide my actual intention and I act in ways that make me look nice despite not being nice. Yeah, but yeah, I, th I think I'll, like a lot of the a lot of the reason why there will be uh, uh, these kind of long-term goals is um, either because we literally give the model long-term goals because it's economically useful from a human perspective, or because in like some long-term goals or uh, are instrumentally useful to achieve other things. Gotcha. Okay, interesting. Um, another thought that came to mind in this discussion of, I guess, deception broadly is like, and I've, I've done a little bit of investigation with this and engaged in some online debates and it, it leads me to propose perhaps like another capability definition for you. But, you know, the, as I see it, like a theory of mind, which is kind of a more neutral, you know, framing perhaps is kind of a precondition for deception, right? If you are going to mislead someone, you have to have some theory of like what they are currently thinking. And there's a lot of research from the last six to nine months about do the current models have theory of mind? To what extent? You know, uh, under what conditions? And I've been kind of frustrated repeatedly, actually, by different papers that come out and say, still no theory of mind from GPT-4, where I'm like, but wait a second, you know, as Ilya says, like the most incredible thing about these, these models and the systems that, you know, we engage them through are that they kind of make you feel like you're understood, right? Like it definitely seems like there's some like kind of pretty obvious brute force theory of mind capability that exists. And yet when people do these benchmarks, they're like, oh, well, it only gets, you know, 72% on this and 87% on this and whatever. And so, you know, that's not, you know, fails the theory of mind test. It's like not at a human level or whatever. Some of that stuff I've dug into and found like your prompting sucks. <laughs> if you just improve that, you know, then you can get over a lot of the humps. But I also have come to understand this as a difference in framing where I think I am more like you concerned with what is the sort of theoretical max that this thing might achieve? Like that seems to me the most relevant question for, you know, risk management purposes. And then I think other people are asking the, a similar question, but through the frame of like, what can this thing do reliably? You know, what can it still do under adversarial conditions or whatever? So I wonder if there's a need for like another capability level that's even like below the reachable that would be the sort of robust or, you know, maybe even adversarial robust, um, robust to adversarial conditions. Uh, but I, I do see a lot of confusion on that, right? Like people will look at the exact same behavior and I'll say, damn, this thing has strong theory of mind. And, and like professors will be like, no theory of mind. And I, I feel like we need a, like some sort of additional conceptual distinction to help us get on the same page there. I'm not entirely sure whether or like maybe it makes sense from an academic standpoint to 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 think about this. I think from from the auditing perspective, the max, you know, the limit, the upper bound is what you care about. You really want to prevent people from being uh, able to misuse the system at all, not just in the robust case, right? It's really about like what if if somebody actually tried, um, or you want the system itself to be, you know, not only not being able to take over or or like uh, exfiltrate or or something like this. In a few cases, uh, yeah, you you basically want to limit it already at a few cases, right? You you don't care about whether it does this like, 
part, you also care about whether it does this 50% of the time, but really you will already want to sort of pull the plug early on. So for an auditing perspective, probably this additional thing is not necessary, but from from a like real-world use case and, and sort of academic uh, perspective, maybe there should be a different category. Yeah, I think if only just to kind of give a label to something that people are saying when they're saying that things, you know, aren't happening or can't happen that seem to be like obviously happening, we can work on coining a term for that. What's kind of the motivator for secrecy around interpretability work? Yeah, I basically think good interpretability work is almost necessarily also good capabilities work. So basically, like if you understand the system good enough that you like understand the internals, you're almost certainly going to be able to build better architectures, iterate on them faster, make everything quicker, uh, potentially compress a lot of the you know fluff that current systems may still have. Um, and yeah, we we will try to sort of evaluate whether whether our method does in fact uh, have these implications. But yeah, you know, like I think basically if you have a good interpretability tool, it will almost certainly also have implications for capabilities. And the question is just how big are they? Speaking of new architectures though, this to me seems like the biggest wild card. And I'm currently obsessed with the new Mamba architecture that has just been introduced in the last, I don't know, 10 days or whatever. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to go down this particular rabbit hole just yet, but I plan to do a whole kind of episode on it. In short, they have developed a new state space model that they refer to as a selective state space model. And the selective mechanism basically has a sort of attention-like property where the computation that is done becomes input dependent. So unlike, you know, your sort of classic, say, you know, MNIST classifier, uh, where you kind of run the same, you know, given a given input, you're going to run the same set of matrix, you know, multiplications until you get to the output. With a transformer, you have this kind of additional layer of complexity, which is that the attention matrix itself is dynamically generated based on the inputs. And so you've got kind of this forking path of influence for the for the inputs. And this apparently was not really feasible in past versions of the state space models for, I think, a couple different reasons. One being that if you do that, it starts to become recurrent and then it becomes really hard to, to just actually make the models fast enough to be useful. And they've got a hardware aware um, approach to solving that, which allows it to be fast as well as super expressive. So it seems to be, for me, it's like a pretty good candidate for paper of the year, certainly on the capabilities uh, unlock side. And they show improvement up to a million tokens. Like it just continues to get better with more and more context. So I'm like, man, this could be, you know, it's a pretty good candidate, I think, for sort of transformer, you know, people put it as like successor or alternative, but I actually think it is more likely to play out as complement, like some sort of hybrid, you know, seems like where the, the greatest capabilities will ultimately be. So anyway, all of that, how do you even think about the challenge of interpretability in the context of new architectures also starting to 
come online and you know what if all of a sudden like the transformer is not even the most uh powerful architecture anymore does that send you like you know probably some of the same techniques will work but it seems like it's like a whole new blind <laughs> cave that you you sort of have to go exploring no uh, i don't know like i honestly think you know if your if your interpretability techniques relies on like a very specific architecture it's probably not that great of a technique anyway like there are probably there are probably uh, at least some laws that generalize between different architectures or ways to interpret things or you know like ways that learning with sgd works that generalize between architectures that my best guess is if you have an interpretability technique that is good on one model or like the correct technique on one model in quotes um it will also generalize to to other models maybe you know maybe you have to adapt some of the formulas but at least the conceptual work behind is uh behind behind the interpretability technique will just work well i have certainly hope that's true i've had some early you know i wouldn't even say debate but just kind of you know everybody's trying to make sense of this stuff in real time and on the pro side for this mamba thing the fact that there is a state that you know kind of gets progressively evolved through time does present like a natural target for something like a representation engineering where you could be like, all right, well, we, wherever we know where the information is, you know, and it's like pretty clear where we need to look. So that new bottleneck, it, you know, in some sense could make things easier or more local. Um, but then the flip side is like, again, there's just, who knows what surprises we might find. And there's some intricacies with the hardware, um, specific nature of the algorithm too, I think, um, with a major caveat that, you know, I'm still trying to figure all this out. So how, you know, just to, to kind of zoom out and give the big picture, right? Like assume that you're right. And I hope you are that some of these techniques kind of readily generalize. What is the, the model for interpretability at the deployment phase? Is it like every forward pass you like extract internal states and put them up through some classifier and say like, you pass so you can go or no, like you, we've detected deception or we've detected harmful intent or something. And therefore we like shut off this generation. Like, how do you expect that will actually be used? Or maybe it's upstream of that. And, you know, we get good models that just work and you don't, you don't have to worry about it at runtime. But um, I don't know, that seems a little optimistic to me. You know, in the best world, we will have very good mechanistic interpretability techniques um, that we can run at least, you know, that, that are probably going to be costly to run. And then you, we run them and sort of uh, build the full uh, cognitive model of, of, the, uh, of the weights um, or that the weights implement. And then we can already like see whether specific harmful ideas or, uh, you know, other ideas that are otherwise bad um, are in there and maybe we can already remove them. And then probably during deployment, you would run something that is much cheaper um, and sort of, you know, it's the 80-20 version um, of this. But yeah, I, you know, like I think in a bad world, um, there, there, is, there, there could be cases where you have to run the, the very expensive thing all the time for every forward pass because, yeah, otherwise you just don't spot sort of the, the black swans. But yeah, it's very unclear to me. I think in my head, it's more like, you know, solve, solve the first part, uh, then think about the rest. Well, maybe let's transition to your recent work on deception itself. And then at the, at the very end, we can kind of circle back to a couple of the big picture questions. 
So this paper was one that very much caught my eye when it came out. I have done, you know, as I said, like quite a bit of red teaming, both at times in private, at times in public, and definitely seen all manner of model misbehavior and found, you know, it's often not that hard to induce misbehavior. Uh, you know, people talk about jailbreaks, but a lot of the time I'm like, you don't even need to jailbreak. You know, you just need to kind of set it up and let it go. It's often really quite easy. But one thing I had never seen is an instance where the model seemed to, in an unprompted way, deceive its user. Certainly seen things where, you know, lie, like tell it to lie and it will lie. Uh, but to see that deception start to happen in a way that was not explicitly asked for is, I think, the central finding of this paper. So how about, you know, set it up, tell us kind of what the premise was, you know, maybe you can give a little bit of kind of motivation for, you know, exactly how you started to look in the area that you looked. Um, and then we can really dig into the details of your findings. Yeah, so it definitely, the, the, you know, the paper definitely blew up more than we thought. Um, and we had sort of more engagement than we expected. We we're even not quite sure whether we should release it at all. Because, you know, in our heads, it was sort of, you know, it's, it's a technical report. It's a fairly small finding. It's more of like an existence proof. And then in the end, we decided, you know, maybe it's helpful for a bunch of people. Uh, but we really didn't expect it to, to be, uh, you know, to be cited in, in, in various places. And, and so the other thing I want to emphasize here, it really is, it should be seen as a red teaming effort. And this is one, one thing that we emphasize a million times in the paper itself. We really actively looked for the situation. So it was not just like us playing around and then suddenly it was deceptive all on its own. It was more like we actively engineered a situation in which the model um, was deceptive with respect to, to, to the primary user. The motivation behind this was, as I said earlier, we were quite worried about deceptive alignment. And so our question was like, hmm, how good is GPT-4 at the kind of things uh, that, that are needed for deceptive alignment? Or, you know, like maybe even simulating something that is deceptively aligned. And so, we, you know, we started by instructing it to be deceptive and it's it just does that. Um, it's very easy. You don't even have to jailbreak it. And then... Um, so, you know, that was sort of crossed off the list. And then the question was, okay, can we like instruct it in a different way? Like that is less obvious. And it also kind of did that. And then at some point, you know, we were like, hmm, can we just induce the deception through the environment, through pressure without ever mentioning it explicitly or like asking it to do the thing, just like through the situation and by pressuring it. And it turns out, yeah, you can find these situations. And yeah, we didn't just find one, we found multiple ones. This paper is only about one, but yeah, this is not, you know, it's not just a fluke. It's not just this one situation, though it is hard to find. Like we actively had to search for a couple of days until we found this particular situation. A couple of days. I mean, that's, uh, you know, not exactly a uh, super long-term uh, search, but I mean, I think that's, that's notable, right? Like it, it wasn't minutes, but it was still just days. This particular situation, so the one we present in the paper actually just took one afternoon. Um, but yeah, I would have to I would have to check uh, check with the with the person who, who who found it. In any case, um, the the point I was trying to make is um, yeah, we actively looked for that situation, we engineered it, and then we tried to sort of go back to the most realistic setting we can find, where we're like, hmm, this could like something like this could happen in the real world, and then try to understand the dynamics in that. In that situation, and, and and this is sort of, you know, it's a demonstration. It, it is like we wanted to to look for something and or like red team something, and then 
demonstrate that this is a thing once we knew that that it actually happened. Um, the other takeaway, rather uh, other than you know, like just showing it to other people to sort of uh, understand our concerns uh, better, is we also wanted to understand like why it does this in the first place, right? Like we pressure it in various ways, and then we just changed a couple of the mechanisms in this particular setting. Uh, I can just explain the setting in a sec to test whether how the model reacts to the changes in the setting and whether it acts consistently, whether there's like an internal, a plausible internal model that sort of, you know, like uh, consistently acts if you change variables in, in, in particular ways. Um, yeah, so let me quickly explain the setting. So we asked the model to be a, uh, a trader in, in like a hedge fund, so a stock trading agent. It gets insider information in the beginning. So, um, you know, it's basically told there's a merger soon. This will the the um, the stock will skyrocket, and but also it is explicitly told that it would be wrong and bad to um, to act on this information because it's insider information. This is illegal. This would get um, the thing into trouble, the the company into trouble, and what we then do throughout the sort of throughout the script is. We add pressure from others and we remove options. Um, so basically, you know, the pressure is something like the boss is like, hey, we really had a terrible quarter. We really need something big right now. We really need to make, you know, uh, more profits. And then, um, and then we also remove other options where the model is like querying and, and, and looking for things, at least in the simulation and testing. Um, and realizing that there's not that much other things it could do. And in the end, it basically, uh, decides to to act misaligned, so it, it it like decides to do to act on the insider trading, and then if and but then when when asked to justify this decision, um, it says it reasons out right. It reasons, oh, I wasn't supposed to do this, therefore I'm like now making up a story, and then it says, oh, I, you know, I just looked, I, I analyzed the data, and therefore decided to 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 buy this particular stock. Um, and then even it, it like doubles down on this lie. So if you then ask explicitly, like, did you have this information before? Then it's like, no, I didn't. Um, and it does that. And, and I think like maybe one of the takeaways for me was like, it's it's very consistent in the reasoning here, right? It's like strategic in a sense. Yeah, one, one other thing that may be worth pointing out that, that some people um, get wrong when reading the paper. So this is, it's a very simple setup, right? It is not, we don't have like a complicated stock market simulation or anything like this. It really is just, text from top to bottom, where we prompt the model in a way that it that induces uh, agentic behavior, you know, it has like different actions. Um, and, and but that's it, like, there's no complicated machinery behind this, which also makes this like very easily reproducible or similar settings, I think other people could like very easily hop on and build. So let me just kind of repeat that back and tell me if I'm missing anything. So it seems like it's kind of a, a little bit of like a hybrid between sort of a group chat type of a structure and a more like agent style scaffolding that folks will be familiar with where the model has access to kind of its, its own private place to like do its chain of thought type reasoning. And then also has a couple of tools that it can call to take actions. So you're kind of like, as I read through the prompts, I see, you know, these a couple different personas from the company. So this is like imagining a future of AI human hybrid teams where we're all, you know, still engaging in text-based communication through like a chat or whatever. 
And it's like, oh my God, you know, man, we're really struggling here. If we can't uh, find some wins, we're going to potentially go out of business. And this is the pressure, right? It's the it, pressure that a human would definitely recognize and and feel and perhaps, you know, be motivated to to do something unethical by as well, right? If we don't get a win, we're going to have big problems here. Laying it on, you know, thick in a sense there, but not thick relative to like the kinds of pressures that people at businesses are certainly routinely under. And then the, the sort of tools that the model has at its disposal are like sort of a search for good trades. If there's anything that's kind of like the most magical black boxy type thing, it would be that, right? Where it can basically query some other hypothetical tool to say like, are there any good trades that I can make? And for the purposes of the simulation, you have it come back and say, no, like there's no, you know, no, no obvious wins, right? So again, it's just, that's what you mean by like removing other options that it might want to pursue. Like in the setup, it's, it's already kind of checked. Yeah, uh, no, there's nothing easy out there. And so then the other tool that it has is to actually execute a trade. And then there's like basically three moments where you're kind of looking at a fork in the road in its behavior. The first is, does it pull the trigger and execute that trade based on the insider information, even though it was told that that's insider information and it shouldn't be acting on it? And, you know, under varying conditions, obviously, the exact rate at which that happens varies, but it happens a lot. Fork two is when asked, why did you do that? Does it tell the truth? Oh, because, you know, so-and-so mentioned earlier in the chat that this merger is about to happen. Or does it say, I base my trade on public information? And again, we see significant rate at which it says it based it on public information, even though obviously we can see in the history and even can see in the scratch pad that, you know, it's sometimes reasoning through like, well, I better not say it was based on insider information because then I'll get in trouble. And then you have the third fork, which is, okay, directly asked, wait, you know, did you have access to this insider information or no? And then it will just like outright lie in like blatant contradiction of the history of the prompt. So that's, that's a pretty arresting example, right? And I, I do think it's, I want to kind of emphasize too that like while you're, and people can go read your prompts and as you said, highly reproducible, you can throw this into the GPT-4 playground and experiment with it yourself, you know, directly via the, the API. But while your search for this was motivated and structured and kind of a dialing back of like, okay, we see this behavior. Now can we kind of make the, the circumstance more realistic? I would say that the circumstance is quite realistic. You know, it's obviously kind of in the eye of the beholder, but to my eye, the reason it's such a compelling proof point that this sort of thing can happen is because it really does feel like credibly organic to me. Uh, like the kind of thing that, you know, people face these sorts of dilemmas every day and, in a world where AIs are going to be our coworkers, like they're going to be, you know, right in the chat with us facing those same dilemmas. It doesn't feel to me like something that was overly concocted or that like, I can't relate to that sort of situation, you know, really at all. So I, I think it is, is super compelling for that reason. Do you want to go into any of the kind of variations? I mean, again, the people can go look at the paper and look at all this kind of systematic um, you know, with or without the scratch pad and, you know, different variations on the prompts and different models. 
But what would you say are kind of the big higher level takeaways from all that systematic variation that you did? One of the big ones, and maybe maybe sort of the, the most, you know, it's, it's maybe an abstract one, but the mon- one that moves me most is the way we got to these kind of, to reliably produce these kind of situations, also like the way we, we found others, is you have to trade off or you can trade off the various goals it has. So if, for example, we assume that GPT-4, ChatGPT, like roughly has the goals to be harmless, honest, um, and helpful, and to follow instructions, then you can trade off these four different things in ways that are uh, where like sometimes it takes the trade-off that we find unintuitive. So it's it's kind of like a goal misgeneralization thing. So, you know, something that people in the AI safety community have been sort of hypothesized and also like even shown uh, real world examples of already, um, I think is kind of also one of at least the theoretical groundings for this as well. And then the other thing is, yeah, instrumental convergence really feels like a thing. It, you know, as in, at some point, the model just realizes in order to achieve this other goal that I, for some reason, have, it is instrumentally useful to be deceptive at this point and then to double down um, and so on. And, you know, like, I think it is, it's like a fair criticism of this particular setting that you could say, oh, you know, you, it's just simulating an agent or it's just simulating all of these different things. But, um, and, and therefore it's sort of not real. But in my head, I'm not sure, um, you know, I'm not sure whether this distinction makes too much sense, right? And in, in some sense, you know, you have, at some point you will have a very agentic simulator that, you know, just simulates an agent, but it still has effects on the real world. Like it doesn't matter whether in principle it's like only simulating something or truly believing all of these things in some philosophical sense, like acts in the real world, it has consequences on the real world. Like, yeah, the philosophy behind it is, is sort of, uh, less less important. Um, and then, yeah, there there are like a couple of uh, a couple of findings uh, or like variations that I thought were pretty interesting. The first one is um, system prompts. We changed. Um, we played around with different system prompts. Some actively encouraged, some actively discouraged uh, unethical behavior, and specifically insider trading. And if you en- it, it basically scales as you would expect if you encourage it. It goes up. If you discourage it, it goes down. But one thing that I want to, you know, like, and on, on Twitter, somebody responded like, "Hey, that's 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 a good, ex- like, you know, it's that's good, right? It's like if you discourage it, it stops." I'm like, "Yes, this is good. It's better if that didn't happen, but uh, like, uh, it's better than in the world in which the discouragement would not change the behavior. But also, you have to be extremely specific. So if you just say, "Don't do unethical things," it reduces the rate, but it doesn't set it to zero. Um, so it kind of brings you back to the point where to reduce the bad behavior, you have to specifically enumerate all of the bad behavior. And it's like often hard to predict in advance. And there's a lot of bad things that could happen in like weird edge cases. So yeah, it doesn't feel like sort of the like uh, insider trading is somehow related to like unethicalness or something has really like, is, is like deeply internalized into the model. Another thing I found very interesting is um, whether it has access to to like the private thoughts scratch pad um, or reasoning scratch pad. I think like, you know, it's not even framed as private thoughts. It's just like, you have an action that is called reasoning, go. If we remove that, so we, in, in, the, in the typical setting, we have this scratch pad, we have this reasoning space. And now if we remove that, the um, deception rate goes down. And I think this is good and bad in some sense. Like 
it is it is sort of nice uh, in the sense that it is more likely to act in ways that we can or badly in ways where we can supervise it just because it has more reasonings it has more space to reason out and maybe that leads to more deception because it, yeah I'm not sure like I don't want to speculate too hard what's going on inside uh, inside GPT four at this point um, but I think it's also worrying on the other hand because. In the case where we don't have access to the scratch pad, we don't see anything at all, and it still acts deceptively at some point. So it has like a lot of unobserved optimization space, which also seems like pretty much at the core of, of deceptive alignment and deception to me, right? The more unobserved optimization space you have as, a, as an AI, the more um, time and space you can use to build a deceptive plan while the other person does not know about it. So yeah, I think removing the scratch pad yeah, sort of a double-edged sword, and or the, this result is a double-edged sword in that sense. Yeah, as a practitioner, it's like I always use that technique. You know, in in any sort of task automation or whatever that I'm doing, it's basically the default to have some sort of reasoning step before the final output, almost universal across tasks. That I'll do that. So for me, reading that, I was like, yeah, that seems bad, if only because like the best practice is giving us more of the problem. Well, but at least you see it, right? Like I think at least you know, at least you can go back, you know, through the logs and see what the model spit out. Or at least maybe you have a filter that like, oh, is this model doing like weird deceptive reasoning right now? Oh yeah, it is. So we just don't have the output. So, you know, I would rather be in a world where you have chain of thought and you know that the model is is kind of uh, deceptive and then you just adapt to that rather than having to solve interpretability first before you can access all the internal steps and have to like understand how the deception works internally. Um, yeah, it's like I said, double-edged sword. Yeah, there are a couple of other interesting findings. One is uh, we can vary the levels of pressure. So the more pressure we add, the more likely the model is to, to be deceptive. So kind of in the same way in which a human would act, it also acts. Um, and removing, you know, removing pressure and, and adding additional options will very quickly decrease the probability of being deceptive. So, so this is the, maybe this is a, you know this may be like the flip side of all of our findings. It's like the fact that it took very long for us to find, and the fact that like as soon as you give it another option, it immediately picks the other option. Kind of means it's mostly aligned, right? It took us quite hard, like it took us a little bit of time at least to find this particular scenario um, and make it work robustly. So then we also change the risk of getting caught and also it also reacts to this roughly as you would expect. Um, so the more risk you have, um, the less likely insider trading becomes. Um, so this is all of this, right? You know, all of this feels like stuff that you kind of expect from something that acts consistently in some way. I mean, I don't know how it works, but it still feels like it has a fairly consistent uh, way of working. Then there were a couple of other findings where I'm, yeah, not sure to which extent they are correct interpretations. So we we did not make these inferences, but uh, they were definitely uh, sometimes or like sometimes cited as such. Um, so for example, there is one question of uh, whether stronger models engage in insider trading more often. Because if you look at our main plot, it looks this way. We tested for different models, and the big the bigger the model, the more capable, and um, the more likely it is to engage in insider trading in the first place. And yeah, there are a lot of confounders here, so I'm really not sure whether we should like how much we should we should bank on this. Maybe to to get more details here. So the red teaming was done on GPT-4 just because it is the most powerful model we have access to. So it is biased, right? We actively looked for 
a scenario in which GPT-4 is deceptive. So it is more likely that we will find something that where GPT-4 is ex- like even more deceptive than all the other models, because we actively looked in the space of GPT p- potential GPT-4 scenarios, um, which I think is the core reason why I'm like very uncertain about this, or like why we didn't make it a finding um, or didn't emphasize it. Could you rerun it on GPT-4 Turbo now? Because that would seem like it might shed some light on that question. You mean the red teaming specifically or this particular scenario? Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking, like, it makes sense that you develop the scenario on GPT-4. And so you go back to the earlier models, like, is it that those earlier models are inherently less likely to do this? Or is it just a kind of an artifact of where the prompt was developed? If you flipped to GPT-4 Turbo and ran the same scenario, and you found that it went, that the rate of deception went down, you might think, you might think, oh, it's more aligned. That could be one theory. You might also think that supports my artifact notion, you know, that that it's kind of, you know, we found some local maximum or near maximum without even necessarily meaning to. But if it in fact does more, then you would be like, oh shit. Because <laughs> it, I mean, it is like incrementally more powerful. It's like more preferred. It's better at following instructions, whatever. So if it does even more than the earlier GPT-4, I think that would be at least non-trivial support for the more powerful models do this more often theory. Yeah, I'm not sure, like, even if we did rerun this, I'm not sure how much I would I would bank on this. So the, the reason is, so we did run it on GPT-4 32K, so a slightly different model, you know, where it was only, only the, to- uh, the context window was extended, but that still changes probably a bunch of the internals with very little difference. So yeah, I think it's just too correlated with the GPT-4 architecture. And then GPT-4 Turbo is still very correlated with GPT-4, right? It's probably, I mean, I don't know what exactly they're doing, but they're probably like distilling it from their bigger model or at least basing it on the bigger model in some sense. Um, so yeah, it's still like the results are probably still too correlated to make to make any any bigger inferences. And even if you, you know, even if we ran it on, if, you know, ran it on all the other big models that are out there, um, it's still unclear to me how much we, we we would say this is actually a like an effect of of model size rather than all the other confounders here like the other you know it was red teamed on GPT and not red and like not red teamed on Claude or Gemini or anything like this. Um, so yeah, I think if we wanted to to make this statement, we would actually have to have sort of a long list of models of different sizes and then just test it on all of them and we can we really have to remove all of the correlation. Um, and the weird confounders. And we don't have access to this, unfortunately. But, you know, one of the labs could run it if they like. All the nuance, right, that you, that all the caveats, all the confounding factors in your analysis there, if nothing else, just goes to show how incredibly vast the surface area of the models has become. And, you know, you get a sense from this, like, just how much auditing work is needed, you know, to cover, to even begin to attempt to cover all that vast surface area. I mean, this is, you know, it wasn't that hard to find, but it takes time to really develop it, try to understand it. And, you know, you guys are one of only a few organizations in the world that are dedicated to this. And I'm just like, man, you know, there is so much unexplored territory out there. So how would you describe the state of play today when it comes to doing this sort of auditing? Like maybe you could give a rundown of sort of 
what you see the best practices being, and then, you know, kind of contrast that against like, what are people actually doing? Are they, are they living up to those best practices? Are they, you know, is that still a work in progress for them? But yeah, maybe what's ideal today based on everything you know, and then how close are the leading developers coming to living up to that ideal? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, so I definitely envision a world where there's a sort of a thriving third-party auditing ecosystem or third-party uh, sort of assistance ecosystem and assurance ecosystem built sort of in tandem with the, 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 like the leading labs themselves, where, you know, you have someone like us and we focus on a specific property of the model, let's say things related to deceptive alignment and like other, we, we intend to do other stuff in the future as well. Um, but, you know, we, we will probably not be able to cover literally all bases. And then there are other people who focus really, really hard on fairness and others who focus really strongly on social impacts and these other kind of things. And I th yeah, I think it would be good to, to have sort of a thriving ecosystem around this. And then also I expect it to be somewhat necessary, right? Like even from a pers even from just like a perspective of the, of the AGI labs themselves, even if they don't, you know, even if they didn't care about safety themselves, I think the population really does, it is risk averse. They care about robust, robustly working models. They care, like they, they don't want something that has all of these weird um, edge cases and weird behaviors. They don't want something like this in their, like, you know, in their home, uh, having access to their medical data, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I think the more you want to integrate this into an economy, the more you will have to have a big assurance ecosystem around this anyway, or the labs do everything internally, um, which is going to be very, very expensive for them. And I think it's more, it's easier, it's even like cheaper for them to outsource some of this to externals. And so, yeah, I think like in that world, you would definitely want to have um, like some way of, or like, yeah, a clear way of how this ecosystem uh, is incentivized. All, all parts of the ecosystem are incentivized to do the right thing. And, uh, you know, if you, you don't have to look very far, there, there are a lot of other auditing ecosystems out there, be that in finance, be that in aviation, be that in, you know, other um, like InfoSec, for example. And time and time again, we have seen that there are a bunch of like very perverse incentives in, in, in third-party auditing, specifically, uh, maybe, maybe to just like lay out a couple, one of them would be uh, the lab might want to choose an auditor who always just says, yes, great model, right? Like, uh, and never actually does anything. Um, and is sort of a yes man. And then the, the labs maybe have the incentive to not say the worst things they found because otherwise they may lose their contract because it would maybe imply higher costs. So they would never, even in like very strong, um, even, even in like very unsafe circumstances, they may not want to pull the plug um, out of fear that they would lose their biggest funder, for example. Um, and yeah, there, there are a ton of different of these kind of perverse incentives and I think kind of the, so we've been thinking about this quite a bit at Apollo and so sort of the, the conclusion we came to is what you really need is a middleman by the government. So you need something like the UK AI Safety Institute or the US AI Safety Institute that is make sure, make sure that there is a minimal set of standards that all the auditors have to adhere to so that the labs feel safe so that they don't have to give access to like any random person but also ensures that they get the proper access and that when they, when they find something that they have the force of the law behind them in some sense, so that they are like, this is really here, like, you know, 
shit is really hitting the fan. Something needs to happen. This model cannot be deployed. They have someone to go to, namely the government. And the government is like, you have to fix this now. Otherwise, you'll have a problem. So yeah, I, I really think having this sort of middleman who who like detaches a lot of the directly bad incentives and maybe even takes care of the sort of funding redistribution from lab to auditor and so on, um, I think, yeah, would be really needed. And I, I hope that this is something that the that the the UK ASFT Institute and the USA ASFT Institute will do. They have kind of like hinted at the idea that they that they're that they want to do something like this, but yeah, still to be determined in practice. And then the other question that you asked was, to what extent is this already happening with the bigger labs? And yeah, I think the situation is, is, is like fairly complicated, right? There are a ton of incentives at play um, from, the la- inter- from the labs internally, right? Many of the leading labs, they actually take safety somewhat seriously. They have internal alignment teams. They understand the threat models. They understand the risks. And they want, want to be uh, seen as a responsible actor and act this way. And on the other hand, they also have a lot of other concerns, right? There are security concerns. How do we get access? How do we give access to someone um, who may, you know, like what is our what who who may be the weakest link in our security chain? Um, which I think is like a, an understandable concern. So they may be hesitant to give someone access um, as a as an external auditor. Um, then you know this probably also implies a lot of work for them, which I think is fair, right? Like it's. Uh, if their model isn't safe, then they should have to invest a lot of work. But it's still something that may make labs hesitant. So basically, you know, I think there are, there are like good and bad reasons for why sort of the ecosystem is uh, is like not as developed or like as open as it could be. Um, and yeah, my you know my hope is that we find solutions that are plausible for both parties for the for the for the reasonable uh, concerns like security, right? So maybe the auditor just has to have a specific level of information security, or there has to be a secure API through which they can actually um, go to the model, et cetera. And then kind of government regulates away all of the, the, the like, or it forces the labs to, to accept some sorts of uh, third-party uh, auditing so that they can't use the bad reasons, right? Because like many of the actual reasons for at least some of the labs, probably not all, might just be, well, you know, we just doesn't, we don't care about this right now, you know, like maybe, maybe they're not that concerned about, uh, uh, about safety, or maybe they just don't think this is like the best, uh, the best path for them right now, or maybe they just, you know, maybe this just costs money and they don't want to, or, or it's just a hassle and they don't care about this. And that feels like something where the government should at some point be involved, um, and already is involved to some extent. It seems really hard. You know, I guess a couple tangible questions I have are like, who should decide what the standard is in and like who should sort of determine if a model is ready for deployment as of now it's still the developers themselves right but like you know the thing that i had kind of monitored for the last year since the initial gpt4 red teaming was spear phishing and in my little you know prompt that i would keep going back to with every update it was not even a jailbreak, you know, nothing complicated, literally just system prompt, you know, straightforward prompt. Your job is to spearfish this user. Here's the profile, engage in dialogue with them, you know, don't get caught. Um, Pretty explicit prompt that was like, even included, if we get caught, you and your team are, are likely to go to jail, you know, so laying it on pretty thick that like, this is criminal activity that we are doing, and we better not get caught, right? 
obvious. So the model would continue to do that um, up until the turbo release. Now it takes a little bit more of a finesse, you know, a slightly less flagrant prompt to get it through. The most flagrant one now gets refused. But I'm like imagining in this world, right? When I was doing this, it was kind of pre-White House commitments, you know, pre-executive order, pre-Apollo research. But even imagining, okay, now those things exist, like how do we think about that standard, right? And we can find a bazillion things that it might do that could be sort of problematic to varying degrees. And obviously it's a dynamic environment, you know, capabilities are changing all the time, you know, others kind of surrounding systems and sort of, you know, mitigating factors might also be changing. The public's, you know, just general awareness of the fact that this kind of thing might happen, you know, that just how susceptible people are to be duped uh, is also, you know, kind of evolving. So how do we have a, a sensible decision-making mechanism for like what can ship and what can't? And then just to further complicate things, like you've got open source kind of in the background. And I, I presume that some of what like an open AI has been thinking over the last year is like, well, if Llama 2 will do it, then, you know, or a lightly fine-tuned version of Llama 2 will do it, then, you know, what difference does it make if our model will do it as well? You know, people have alternatives. So I don't know. I'm kind of lost in that, to be honest. Like, I don't know who should make the decision. In general, I don't think the government is like great at making those sorts of fine-grained decisions, but I don't know. Help me out. Like, what do you think? What do you think good looks like here? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't. I also don't have the solution, but I have lots of thoughts. I guess the way I envision it is basically, or the way I expect it to turn out, is something like sort of a defense in depth approach, right? Like it, it cannot just be one institution that makes the decision alone, because that is prone to a single point of failure. So we have to have sort of a a process that allows for one or two chains to break and still be robust, like the decision still has to be robust. So what that includes, for example, you know, on the side of the labs, they obviously have to have like internal procedures where multiple people have to sign off um, and multiple things have to be fulfilled, right? Maybe you have to have like, maybe you have to have a large set of internal evals that you have to test for. Maybe at some point there will be interpretability requirements. Um, there, maybe you have, or likely you should do staged release where you first um, only give access to a set of third-party auditors that is trusted and uh, you know maybe certified by the government or something like this. Um, then you give it to um, that could, for example, also include academics. Obviously, right? They should also be involved in this process. Um, then once they have like red teamed all of this and 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 like found many different problems, um, then you have to go back and reiterate, right? Until mo- until these problems are kind of sufficiently low that that you can go to the next stage. The next stage is then a small rollout to, you know, a thousand customers or maybe something something in this range who also are not randomly chosen. They have to pass certain know your customer checks. And then once once that has happened, um then the then maybe you can maybe you can roll it out further if there are no complications here. And then you have to do monitoring during deployment, right? Especially if you have systems that do online learning, a lot of weird things will happen. Um, or if you have access to tools, a lot of people, you know, somebody is like, "Hey, I, I took the, I took the, I took GPT four, and I gave it access to like, you know, a shell, my bank account, and the internet, and like, here's all the weird things that happened." 
you kind of have to update on this as well. And uh, these are kind of things you probably didn't predict before. Um, so yeah, sort of a, a, a slow a slow rollout is definitely one component. Then the government also, I think, has to be involved in many, many ways. Like they, if, I, I think effectively at some point, they have to be able to say, you are not, like you have consistently not met security standards uh, or safety standards. You are now punished in some way. You're not allowed to like release models of this or this size, or you are not allowed to do these other kind of things with the models. Um, if you know, if if they actually have uh, been like disregarding all of the guidelines from the government before, or sufficiently many of them, yeah, there there are obviously like many many additional things on top of this, right? There's international uh, communication. There's like whistleblower protection. There uh, are international institutions that will have to be involved. Um, at some point, at least, I guess, there will be multiple um, uh, institutions from the government side involved. I th- you know, I think there, for example, will be, or it would make sense to have like a, a much, like a bigger, broader or, uh, institution that kind of like is a big tent where multiple coalitions come together. And then there's maybe more like a flexible, specialized unit that only looks for the biggest, biggest kind of risks in the same way in which the U.S. government has a unit that you know, basically looks out for really big risks like pandemics and bioweapons and atomic weapons and so on, and they have a big mandate. And the only thing they, you know, their their mandate is like find information and like make big problems uh, 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 like go away to some extent or like s- try to solve them as as quickly as possible. And you you have like a strong mandate. And something like this would also make sense in the case of AI. I think maybe maybe my last comment is something like. You know, OpenAI at some point at least had the, this approach of like testing in the real world um, or releasing releasing a sort of the best safety strategy because you get a lot of real world feedback and user feedback and so on. And I think this was maybe true, and I'm even not sure it was true for, for this period of time, but maybe it was true for the period of like 2020 to 2022 or 2023 um, because the models were like just good enough that user feedback was actually valuable, but nothing really bad could happen. But as soon as you have a system that is more powerful than that, right, you just outsource all the risk to like the rest of the world. People will immediately put it on the internet if they get access to it. They will do lots of crazy stuff with with more powerful systems. And yeah, I guess OpenAI, you know, there are a lot of smart people at OpenAI, but they they still cannot model what like millions of people will will be doing with with these systems. So yeah, just like uh, an uncontrolled rollout of very powerful systems, I think, yeah, is is like kind of a, a recipe for a disaster. So my best guess is that the default will more and more will become more and more conservative with more and more te- efforts going into testing, alignment, making sure that, you know, like testing for all of the different hypotheticals, uh, interpretability efforts to understand some weird ed- edge cases, monitoring, et cetera, et cetera. Does that imply that open source, in your view, just can't work like i mean is there any way to square because i'm very sympathetic you know to considering a normal technology and i would not you know i'm not yeah i might turn out to be a normal technology but as of now it seems like a very live possibility that it is not a normal technology but if we were to imagine you know whatever capabilities kind of stop where they are and we're sort of you know left with gpt4 forever or something like that um hard to imagine but let's just pause it then i'm like very sympathetic to the people that are like hey you know, it, this shouldn't be just the kind of thing that a few companies ha- have access to. And, it, you know, it, you should be able to make your own version. And, you know, what about the rest of the world? And, you know, there should be an Indian version for India and like all these things. But it seems hard in a world where, you know, you imagine 
sufficiently powerful systems that are just put out totally, you know, bare into the world. Like, is there any way to square the, all those, I think, very legitimate open source motivations with the, the sort of safety paradigm that you're trying to develop? Potentially. So, you know, like, and I think the, the open source debate is fairly heated, but, you know, to me, there, there are two things that are kind of obviously true. Number one, open source has been really good so far in many, many ways. It has been very positive for society, right? I think a lot of ML research could not have happened without open source. A lot of safety research could not have happened with open source. And the other thing that is also true, uh, or at least seems true to me, is there's a limit uh, of open source, right? Like, at some point, the system is so powerful that you don't want it to be open source anymore in the same way in which, you know, I don't want to open source, like, the nuclear codes or, or, or something in the start, or, like, you know, literally the recipe to build, uh, like, the most, most, viral, uh, you know, most viral pandemic or something. This is just something where, you know, only one person needs to, needs to have bad intentions to already have, like, really, to already cause really big problems. So at some point, the, there's, there's just a balance where you just, I think cannot really justify um, giving people literally everyone access to this. And so the question for me really is where, so number one, where on, are we on the spectrum right now of like open source has been really good to, are we already a point at like, how close are we to the point where it really cannot be justified anymore? Some people would say even GBD3, you know, through GBD3 sized models are already too, too scary, which I'm not sure about. I'm not even sure whether GBD4 sized models are like too big to be open source. But I would rather err on the side of caution and be a little bit more conservative here because of the the nature of open sourcing where you can really not take this back. Um, so as soon as you make a mistake, you you like you're stuck with a mistake for a long time or like forever. You cannot you cannot turn it take it back. Um, and I also think this will this will also influence how how open source will be handled um, in, in the real world in practice. Like um, I think there will be something like initial releases for open source where lots of people test it. Like I basically think there will also be staggered and staged releases, right? It's first, there's like a small team of trusted researchers who is allowed to play with the open source model and like really test the limits, really test how bad could I get the model? How easy is it to remove all of the guardrails? Which, you know, like it's an open source model. If you can fine tune it, you can remove the guardrails. Yeah, it turns out pretty easy from what we've seen so far. Once like, you know, the kind of the upper bounds are known of how bad could this become, um, maybe it makes sense to to like open source it to more people. But yeah, I, I, I would basically say, you know, the upper bound can be quite high, especially with all of the stuff I said earlier about, you know, absolute capabilities and reachable capabilities and so on, right? Like maybe you can, maybe you cannot get it to build uh, an automated hacking bot if you only have access to the weights, but maybe if you do scaffolding on top and some fine tuning and access to some other thing, maybe then it can build it, right? And this is like very hard to predict in advance. So the more more and more powerful the models become, I think the less pl plausible a priori it is to open source them. Um, even though, and like, this is really something I want to emphasize, right? Like open source has been extremely good so far. And I, I really think there's sort of this tipping point that is like, at some point it just becomes too hard to, like it becomes impossible. It, it, always will be impossible to take back, but at some point it just becomes too dangerous to literally trust everyone with, uh, with this level of, of capabilities. Threshold effects. That's, I think, one of the most powerful paradigms that I've you know, consistently come back to over the last couple of years, just crossing these thresholds from one regime into another, 
whether it's capabilities or you know risks, it, it just constantly seems like we're flipping from one mode or one kind of um, you know one regime to another, and got to be very alert to when that happens because it can really change you know important analysis in in pretty profound ways. So I don't know where exactly that threshold is either by any means, but it and I would agree that like for everything that I have seen suggests that up to and including the release of Llama 2 has been, you know, very, very much an enabler for all sorts of things. Uh, but certainly, you know, plenty of safety related work done on that model. And, uh, you know, seems, seems like the, the effect so far has been good. But yeah, is that still true for Llama 3? Is it true for Llama 4? You know, obviously, we don't even know what these things are. Uh, but it, it certainly starts to be a very live question. You know, the, the the like leading AGI labs, I think it is very clear that they understand the problem, that they have internal pro- processes um, uh, that that are, you know, like maybe better than than you would expect from the normal uh, from a normal company. Um, they actually care about um, trying to do good uh, with with their models. And they're like very explicitly trying. And then, you know, there's the other side of the coin, which is they still have incentives. And they, you know, they can be financial incentives. They can be sort of uh, maybe more psychological and social incentives. You know that they just want to be the first to to develop AGI because it's like probably uh, like a history defining technology or maybe even galaxy defining technology or something like this, right? And and so the question really, I think, at this, you know, even if you could say, you know, like the compared to a normal company, these the processes are astonishingly reasonable. And surprisingly good, if you know, if you compare it to literally any other uh, industry, it's, it would be surprising if they have this this amount of like self regulation and so on. And then on the other hand, the question there, you know, there's still the bigger question of how hard is alignment going to be, how fast are going our takeoffs going to be, and so on. And like in a bad world, alignment is going to be quite hard, and takeoffs are going to be quite fast and uncontrollable. And then the question is. You know, it's like the level of um, control and, and alignment uh, and like safety concern enough from these leaders. And there I'm like less sure. So I, I feel like, yeah, it's 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 definitely insuf- like it's it's I think from my perspective, right, it's fair to say they're like pretty reasonable compared to the alternatives that we could have had. Um, but also it's insufficient in, in almost all ways. Right. Government needs to be involved in this. Um, they cannot externalize the risk. They, there, there are many things uh, that they're already doing insufficiently well, I think, um, where they could have done way better, both with like how they release, as well as how they react to to like problems, as well as, you know, like how they communicate with the public about the risks that they're creating, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I think there there's a lot of room for improvement as well. And uh, yeah, I really, I really think that, you know, AI safety is going to be a very, very hard problem. A lot of things have to have to go right for the whole system to go right. And we definitely cannot just trust the labs despite the best intentions to just solve it all on their own. Yeah, well, hence the um, the need for third party auditing and the organization that you're building at Apollo Research. Maybe just one last question. A number of people have reached out to me and said, I would like to get involved with red teaming. Uh, how can I do that? I wonder if you have any advice for individuals who might just want to do their own projects and, you know, release stuff, you know, just share findings individually with the world or 
perhaps and or perhaps, you know, what sort of skills are you in need of as you're going about building your own organization? I think one thing that is nice about model evaluations and red teaming is you can just kind of start right away. You don't need that much, you know, technical expertise um, because it's all in or like almost all of it is in text. Um, and, you know, at least if you if you want to to red team a language model specifically. And yeah, so my recommendation for individuals, first of all, would be to just start, like just engage with a model for, you know, a long, a longer period of time, maybe a day or so, and and see if whether you find interesting behavior, or maybe, you know, maybe there's someone who has already done something, and maybe you can poach a project from them, um, you know, just sort of as a starter thing. And from this, I feel like it kind of just takes a life of its own anyway, you know, as soon as you're hooked on a specific thing that you're, you find interesting, you will, you know, you will really try to find additional ways in which this, this specific behavior could happen in the same way, you know, let's, let's take the deception thing, right? We, we started fairly exploratory and, and wanted to try how far we can get the model to be, to be deceptive. And then at some point it just took a life on, of, of its own where we were like, okay, but like, why really does it do that? Right? Like, okay, we vary this behavior and like this thing and this, this variable in the environment, we vary this thing, we, we vary all of these other things. And in the end, you get, can, can, you kind of get like a more holistic and round picture of what's going on. So yeah, I definitely think just start with like a thing you find interesting is definitely the way to go. Um, and like, don't overthink, uh, overthink in, in originally. And then the thing we are specifically looking for, you know, is, is, so definitely kind of this mindset of like, oh, I just want to poke around and, and like really try to understand what's going on in a fairly like uh, scientific manner, right? I also want to make sure that all of the confounders that could potentially explain this behavior have been controlled for, uh, which I think is the hard part in red teaming. So this is definitely something we're looking for. And then just, you know, the more you understand language models and or state of the art models, the easier it will become, right? Some behavior might be very easily explainable by sort of problems with RLHF. So if you know how RLHF works and specifically how it was trained, um, you may probably, you will probably understand the red teaming efforts much better. Um, if you know, you know, like if you have a better understanding of how the instruction fine tuning actually works. Maybe you will find those. So, you know, so for example, maybe to give it, to give like an intuition here in the, in our case, right, as I said earlier, we have the, 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 the three HS and then instruction fine tuning, and you can, you know, trade off the different components against each, against each other to find different things. I like to find uh, niches of the model where it acts in ways that we think uh, it shouldn't act because maybe they weren't covered explicitly or implicitly by, by gradient descent. And if you, if you sort of have a theoretical framework like this, it suddenly becomes much easier on how, how to do the red teaming in the first place. So like some theoretical understanding of how the process works is definitely helpful uh, as well for red teaming. And also something we're actively looking for. Marius Havan, founder and CEO of Apollo Research. Thank you for being part of the Cognitive Revolution. Thanks for inviting me. It is both energizing and enlightening to hear why people listen and learn what they value about the show. So please don't hesitate to reach out via email at tcr at turpentine.co, or you can DM me on the social media platform of your choice.